0: Chapter 41 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. Chapter 41 The Drought. A cloudy and threatening day in May there came an inch of rainfall. I had completed sowing 250 acres of flax a few days before, and soon everything looked beautiful and green. I felt extremely hopeful. During the six years I had been farming in Dakota, I had raised from fair to good crops every year. The seasons had been favorable, and if a good crop had not been raised, it was not the fault of the soil or from lack of rainfall. The previous year had not been as wet as others, but I had raised a fair crop, and at this time had 410 acres in crop and 110 acres rented out, from which I was to receive one-third of the crop. I had come west with hopes of bettering my financial condition, and had succeeded fairly well. Around me at this time others had grown prosperous. Land had advanced until some land adjoining Magori had brought one hundred dollars per acre, and land a few miles from town sold for fifty to eighty dollars per acre. Before settling in the West, I had read in real estate advertisements all about the wheat land that could be bought from $10 to $25 per acre that would raise from 25 to 40 bushels of wheat to the acre. While all this was quite possible, I had never raised over 25 bushels per acre and mostly harvested from 10 to 20. I had wondered, before I left Chicago— How, at a yield of 30 bushels per acre, and for the last seven or eight years, prices had ranged from 70 cents to $1 per bushel for wheat, the farmers could spend all the money. Of course, I had learned in six years that 25 to 40 or 50 bushels per acre, while possible, was far from probable and considerably above the average The average yield for all wheat raised in the United States is about 14 bushels per acre, but crops had averaged from fair to good all over the Northwest for some 15 or 16 years, with some exceptions, and the question I had heard asked years before, will the drought come again, was about forgotten. During the three years previous to this time, poor people from the East— and around Megory and Callis as well, who were not able to pay the prices, demanded for relinquishments and deeded lands in Megory, Tip County, or the eastern states, had flocked by thousands to the western part of the state, and taken free homesteads. At the beginning of this, my seventh season in Dakota, The agricultural report showed an exceedingly large number of acres had been seeded, and the same report, which was issued June eighth, reported the condition of all growing crops to be up to the ten-year average and some above. It was on Sunday. I had quit breaking prairie on account of the ground being too dry, and while going along the road, I noticed a field of spelt that looked peculiar. "'Going into the field, I dug my fingers into the soil and found it dry. "'I could not understand how it had dried out so quickly, "'but thinking it would rain again in a few days, "'it had been but ten days since the rain, I thought no more about it. "'The following week, although it clouded up and appeared very threatening, "'the clouds passed and no rain fell.' On Saturday, I drove into Ritten, and on the way again noticed the peculiar appearance of the growing plants. It was the topic of discussion in the town, but no one seemed willing to admit that it was from the lack of moisture. The weather had been very hot all week, and the wind seemed to blow continually from the south. In past years, after about two days of south winds, we were almost sure to have rain. The fact that the wind had blown from the south for nearly two weeks and no rain had fallen caused everybody to be anxious. That night was cloudy. The thunder and lightning lasted for nearly two hours, but when I went to the door I could see the stars, and the next day the heat was most intense. The Wessenburgers had said the heavens would be ablaze with lightning and resound with peals of thunder but that they were only solstice storms, coming up in unusual directions, and that such storms were characteristic of a dry season. Furthermore, that heavy abnormal rains would occur in scattered localities at the same time, but they would be few and far apart. June 15th I took my sister to Victor to make proof on her homestead, and from there drove to Megory. "'stopping in Callus to send my wife a telegram "'to the effect that I felt I was going to be sick "'and for her to draw a draft on the bank of Callus and come home. "'The telegram was not answered. "'Next morning my sister left for Kansas, "'and that afternoon a heavy downpour of rain "'fell all over Megory County and as far west as Victor, "'but north of Ritten, where I had my flax crop.' "'there was scarcely sufficient rain to lay the dust. "'On that day the hot wind set in and lasted for seven weeks, "'the wind blowing steadily from the south all the while. "'I had never before, during the seven years, "'suffered to any extent from the heat, "'but during that time I could not find a cool place. "'The wind never ceased during the night, "'but sounded its mournful tune without a pause.' Then came a day when the small grain in Tip County was beyond redemption, and rattled as leaves in November. The atmosphere became stifling, and the scent of burning plants sickening. My flax on the sod, which was too small to be hurt at the beginning of the drought, began to need rain and reports in all daily papers told that the great heat wave and the drought in many places were worse than in Tip County. All over the western and northern part of the state were localities where it had not rained that season. Potatoes, wheat, oats, flax, and corn in the western part of the state had not sprouted, and, it was said, in a part of Butte County where seed had been sown four inches deep the year before, there had not been enough rain since to make it sprout. The government had spent several million dollars damming the Bell Forch River for the purpose of irrigation, and the previous autumn, when it had been completed, the water in it had been run onto the land to see how it would work, and since had been dry. No snow had fallen in the mountains during the winter, and all the rivers were as dry as the roads, while all the way from the Gulf to Canada the now protracted drought was burning everything in its wake. At Kansas City, where the treacherous Kaw empties its waters into the Missouri— and had for years wrought disaster with its notorious floods. Drowning out two and sometimes three crops in a single spring was nearly dry, and the crops were drying up throughout its valley. I spent the 4th of July in Victor, where the people shook their heads gravely and said, "Tip County will never raise a crop.' The crops had dried up in Tip County the year before. I had read that the railroad men, who run from Kansas City to Dodge City, reported that the pastures through Kansas were so dry along the route that a louse could be seen crawling a half-mile away. In parts of Iowa, the farmers commenced to put their stock in pens and fed them hay from about the middle of June, there being no feed in the pastures. Through eastern Nebraska, western Iowa, and southern Minnesota, the grasshoppers began to appear by the millions and proceeded to head the small grain. To save it, the farmers cut and fed it to stock in pens. The markets were being overrun with thin cattle from the western ranges, where the grass had never started on account of lack of moisture. I watched my flax crop, and early in July noticed it beginning to wilt. Then millions of army worms began cutting it down. On the 11th, I left for Magori County, with my stock, to harvest the winter wheat there. It had been partially saved by the rain in June. The 285 acres of flax was a brown, sickly-looking mess, and I was badly discouraged, for outside of my family trouble, I had borrowed my limit at the bank, and the flaxseed, breaking, and other expenses had amounted to $1,100. About this time, the settlers all over the western highlands began to desert their claims. Newspapers reported Oklahoma burned to a crisp, and Kansas scorched from Kansas City to the Colorado line. Homesteaders to the north and west of us began passing through the county, and their appearance presented a contrast to that of a few years before. Fine horses that marched bravely to the land of promise, drawing a prairie schooner, were returning east with heads hanging low from long stringy necks, while their alkali hoofs beat a slow tattoo as they wearily dragged along, drawing, in many cases, a dilapidated wagon over which was stretched a tattered tarpaulin while others drew rickety hacks or spring wagons with dirty bedding and filthy-looking utensils. These people had not made a dollar in the two years spent on their homesteads. At Pierre, it was said, 700 crossed the Missouri in a single day, headed east. While in the settlements they had left, the few remaining settlers went from one truck patch to another, digging up the potatoes that had been planted in the spring for food. One day I crossed the White River and went to visit the Wisenbergers, who lived seventeen miles to the north. On the way, out of forty-seven houses I passed, only one had an occupant. THE LAND IN THAT COUNTY IS UNDERLAID WITH A HARD PAN ABOUT FOUR INCHES FROM THE SURFACE AND HAD NOT RAISED A CROP FOR TWO YEARS. THE SETTLERS HAD LEFT THE COUNTRY TO KEEP FROM STARVING. AS I DROVE ALONG THE DUSTY ROAD AND GAZED INTO THE EMPTY HOUSES THROUGH THE FRONT DOORS THAT BANGED TO AND FRO WITH A MONOTONOUS TONE, FROM THE FORCE OF THE HOT SOUTH winds, I FELT LONELY AND FAR AWAY. THE ONLY LIVING THING IN SIGHT BEING AN OCCASIONAL DOG THAT HAD NOT LEFT WITH ITS MASTER, OR HAD RETURNED, BUT ON SEEING ME, RAN WITH TUCKED TAIL, LIKE A FRIGHTENED COYOTE. MERCHANTS WERE BEING PRESSED BY THE wholesale HOUSES. THE RECENT YEARS HAD BEEN PROSPEROUS, AND IT IS SAID PROSPERITY BREEDS CONTEMPT AND RECKLESSNESS. The townspeople and many farmers had indulged lavishly in chug-chug cars. Bankers in wholesale houses, who had always criticized so much automobilism, were now making some wish they had never heard the exhaust of a motor. In addition to this, the speculators were loaded to the guards with lands carrying as heavy mortgage as could be had which was large, for prosperity had caused loan companies to increase the amount of their loans. No one wanted to buy. Everyone wanted to sell. The echo of the drought seventeen years before, and the disaster which followed, rang through the country and had the effect of causing prices to slump from five to fifteen dollars per acre less than a year before. Now, what made it worse for Tip County was that it had been opened when prosperity was at its zenith. The people were money-mad, reckless from the prosperity which had caused them to dispense with caution and good judgment. They were brought suddenly to a realization of a changed condition. The new settlers, all from eastern points, came into Tip County seeing Tip County claims worth not $6 per acre, the price charged by the government, but finding ready sales at prices ranging from 25 to $45 and even $50 per acre. They had spent money accordingly, and now, when the parched fields frowned and old Jupiter Pluvius refused to speak, the community faced a genuine panic came a day, sultry and stifling, with excessive heat, when I drove back to the claims. Everywhere along the way were visible the effects of the drought. Vegetation had withered, and the trails gave forth clouds of dust. Late in the afternoon, clouds appeared in the northwest, and the earth trembled with the resounding peals of thunder." The lightning played dangerously near, and then, like the artillery of a mighty battle, the storm broke loose, and the rain fell in torrents, filling the draws and ravines and overflowing the creeks, which ran for days after. All over the north country, the drought was broken, and plant life began anew. My wheat threshed about eight hundred bushels, and when marketed, the money received was not sufficient to pay current expenses. Therefore, I could not afford the outlay of another trip to Chicago, but wrote many letters to Orlean, imploring her to return, but all in vain. During the summer, I had received many letters from people in Chicago and southern Illinois denouncing the action of the elder in preventing my wife from returning home. The contents of these letters referred to the matter as an infamous outrage and sympathized with me by hoping my wife would have courage to stand up for the right. I rather anticipated that with so much criticism of his action by the people belonging to the churches in his circuit, he would relent and let her return home. But he remained obstinate. The months continued to roll by, and my wife stayed on. I had not written her concerning the drought, which had so badly impaired crops, I knew her people read all the letters she received, and felt that with the knowledge in their possession that my crop had been cut short, along with the rest, would not help my standing. They would be sure to say to her, I told you so. The last letter that I received from my wife that year was written early in the fall, in answer to a letter that I wrote her. "'and in which I had sent her some money "'with which to buy some things for my grandmother. "'When Orlean had been in Dakota, "'she had been very fond of my grandmother "'and had asked about her in every letter, "'whether the letter was kind or abusive, as regarded me. "'My wife's letter stated that she had received the money "'and thanked me also stated "'that she would get the things for Grandma that day. "'Neither Grandmother or I,' received the things i was so wrought up over it all yet saw no place where i could get justice in order to show the reverend that he was being criticized by friends of the family i gathered up some half dozen or more letters including the last one from claves and one from mrs ewis and sent them to him The one from Mrs. Ewis related how he had written to her, just before he took my wife away, saying that she was in dire need and wanted to borrow twenty-five dollars to bring her home. Needless to say, she had not sent it, nor assisted him in any other way in helping to break up the home. As a result, she said, he had not spoken to her since. I learned later that the letters I had sent had made him terribly angry. I received a letter from him, the contents of which were about the same as his conversation had been, excepting that he did not profess any love for me, which at least was a relief, but from the contents I derived that he had expected his act to give him immortality and expressed surprise that he should be criticized for coming to Dakota and saving the life of his child, as he put it, from the heartless man that was killing her in his efforts to get rich. He seemed to forget to mention any of the facts which had occurred during his last trip, namely, his many declarations of undying love for us of how glad he was that we were doing so much toward the development of the Great West, and his remarks that if he was twenty-five years younger it was where he would be. He also suggested that he would try to be transferred to the Omaha district so that he might be nearer us. End Chapter Forty-One